This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey to a Brave New World, and the author is David Watts, and David Watts joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you with us. The subtitle really sets this up even more, of course, uh, Journey to a Brave New World, the startling evidence that humanity is being manipulated towards a very grim future, but we can change direction. That's the hope and the positive side to this book. It, it is what it is. I think we see it in the news everywhere. And, of course, we all remember A Brave New World. Aldous Huxley wrote that back. When did he write that? Well, he wrote it in 1931. It was published in 1932. So here was a man who could see it coming. Yep, absolutely. Um, and uh, again, he, he wrote Brave New World Revisited in 1952, just uh, further saying that um, his, uh, his vision that, that was depicted in 1932 was, uh, was certainly moving along nicely. So why did you write this book? And you've written another book as well. There's a couple of books you've written. Yeah, uh, this book and then uh, part two of it, um, Journey to Brave New World, part two. But uh, the reason I wrote uh, these books was to try and help people wake up to, to what is happening in our world, uh, how we're being manipulated and engineered towards a you know a vision, as I say, that uh, is not going to be very good for the majority of us. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted something to be able to be a quick read for those that uh, wanted to at least explore it and also as a tool for those that were awake but had difficulties in waking up their friends and family to what was really happening. Well, let's get an overview. Tell us, you just, you know, just uh, give us a snapshot and maybe we'll get into some details later, but just kind of give us an overview of your first book. Yeah, well, the first book, um, what it does is I start off by taking what appears to be unconnected but some bizarre news reports and show some of the backstories uh, to those and some of the important questions that haven't been uncovered by so-called journalists. And, um, you know, just as what one example was the um, uh, a news report that went out uh, explaining that um, there will always be a human behind uh, uh, the drones and, uh, you know, there will be no automated killing of people using drones. And yet when you look at the um, research uh, that's been done within the, uh, the Marine Corps and their robotics division, uh, their stated goal is to create a fully autonomous uh, unmanned ground weapon system. So you know, it goes completely against the uh, the news reports that we see. Uh, and then 
I cover off the um, really the history of banking and how the central bankers uh, effectively create money out of nothing and then use that ill-gotten gains to manipulate events uh, to further consolidate wealth uh, for the uh, for the one percent. So you see a conspiracy. It's very clear to you. Oh, it is absolutely clear. Um, there is a small group of people that are controlling the world. Uh, they essentially control all of the banking, all of the media outlets, and both sides of the political spectrum, as was um, confirmed by Carol Quigley in 1960 in his book, uh, Tragedy and Hope. And he was one of the insiders and just wanted to tell everybody. Yeah, he was actually the, uh, apart from being a professor of history at uh, Browns and Princeton, uh, he was the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. And he, uh, uh, again, confirmed that he had access to all of their documents uh, for two years. And um, he said back in the 60s in his book that uh, the both sides of the political spectrum were really being run by the same group, which heralded out of the well, the Institute of International Affairs, the Roundtable, the Milner Group, that then spun off to become the Council on Foreign Relations, and that really there is no left and right uh, because they're all controlled by the same uh, puppet or, or hand in the middle. Now, in your second book, Brave New World, and what is it titled, the full title? Uh, Brave New World Part 2, with Part the subtitle, two. U.S. Civilian Labor Camps, the Trojan Horse for the Communist Takeover of the United States and the Plan to Stop It. Mm. So in, in this book, uh, what I do is I detail out the plans and procedures that are already in place uh, for civilian inmate labor camps within the United States. And I then detail out the... Uh, the build-up of the Department of Homeland Security with their two-plus-something billion rounds of ammo, the mine-resistant armored vehicles that they purchased, the thousands of Heckler-Kosh machine guns, uh, all of it uh, detailing out using actual government uh, documents um, and um, uh, contract award information. Well, those are chilling words when you start talking about civilian inmate labor camps. Uh, but obviously, with the latest news, the way they're spying on us, and Obama doesn't seem to think that's wrong. It's, you know, just trust the government, right? Yep, trust the government. And by the way, um, you don't need any weapons. Uh, the only people that are allowed to be having weapons in the future will be the Department of Homeland Security. Sounds rather like uh, Nazi Germany to me. Well, uh, what, what would the readers find controversial in your book that just would just rub them the wrong way? Well... Uh, the, the readers might find uh, a lot of things controversial. Um, you know, the one ch in uh, one chapter in the first book, the depopulation agenda, I uh, show that there is a plan to have a massive depopulation of the world uh, to at least 90, down to even 95 percent. 
and people might find that controversial because they just couldn't believe that a, a small group of people would have that uh, goal. But uh, I, again, I do uh, provide a great deal of uh, uh, evidence and research that I've uncovered, uh, both from the writings of the so-called elites. Um, you know, also detail out things like the Georgia Guidestones, which is a set of stones, sometimes called the American Stonehenge, uh, which has the uh, written on it uh, what they call the Ten Commandments of the Georgia Guidestones, and the first of those commandments is to maintain humanity at levels of 500 million. Uh, we stand at 7 billion roughly at the moment, so that would mean 6.5 billion people would have to be uh, not on this planet. So do you see that coming through war or just genocide? Well, I, it's, it's a full-spectrum attack. Um, it's done through vaccinations, as Bill Gates said, that uh, they would um, manage the population and reduce the population by use of vaccines. It's done through uh, genetically modified foods. It's done through fluoridated water. And that's why you see reports, even the British broadcasting company, BBC, last week came out and said that by 2020, uh, half of the UK population will die of cancer. Well, you, that, uh, mm. Those statistics are just incredible. And if you look at the uh, infertility rates, the re huge reduction in sperm count, particularly in the Western world where fluoridated water is used, uh, you will see that there is a, a definite uh, depopulation agenda there. And again, they do use wars to um, uh, to try and make a dent. But again, you know, all of this is, is planned. It's documented in the writings of Bertrand Russell, uh, John Holdren, who is Obama's science czar, wrote in his book, uh, Eco-Science, Population, Resources and Environment, in the 1970s, along with Paul Ehrlich and Anne Ehrlich, that to control population, they would uh, include adding a sterilant to the water or food supply. And of course, shortly after that, we see the massive increase in fluoridated water in the United States. And cancer seems to be at epidemic rates. It seems like everybody, I mean, there's nobody, there isn't anybody that doesn't know somebody with cancer. No, that's right. And um, of course, they, they know what, what, it's, uh, what it's doing. Uh, or how the cancer is caused. You only have to look at uh, the plastics that they use for uh, drinking water or the liner of uh, food cans. It contains bisphenol A. Bisphenol A, um, it leaches into the, uh, into the food and water, mimicking estrogen, which uh, certainly in women causes cancer and uh, a you know, high dosage or regular dosage of estrogen for men uh, can make them more effeminate. Well, we want to get to some of your recommendations. You, in fact, you say you have a 45-step plan that we must take to change direction and return the U.S. to its former glory. Uh, but you just wanted to make just a comment that you also believe that we've been lied to about the events of 9-11. Uh, we've only got, uh, like, if you could just share about a minute's worth on that, and then we'll get to what you see we must do. But just quickly talk about 9-11. Yes, uh, unfortunately, we were lied to about 9-11. Uh, 
some of the smoking guns in a, in a very uh, quick um, overview here is World Trade Center 7. It collapsed into its own footprint at near free full speed. There were fires only on about four or five of those floors. Um, it was a 47-story building. Um, as I say, it collapsed at near free full speed. And um, it didn't even get a mention in the 9-11 Commission report. Uh, but also interestingly is that BBC and CNN reported that it had collapsed 20 minutes before it actually did. Clearly, uh, they got the timing of their scripting wrong. And then when you look at the, the Pentagon, uh, I have pictures of the Pentagon before the roof collapsed, and all you see is a 16-foot diameter hole. There is no way that a Boeing 757 with a 124-foot wingspan and a tail height of 44 foot could possibly fit into a 16-foot hole. So, yes, 9-11, unfortunately, um, we were lied to about that. Give us a few of your steps to help us change direction and literally take our country back. Well, uh, as I say, in, in the second book, I detail out 45 steps. Um, I've not got them in any particular order, uh, but I do believe that uh, communism is being used to grind us down and uh, make us a more immoral country. And uh, so with that, uh, the first step that I... Uh, in, uh, put down in my book uh, was to reinstate the hearings on the un-American activities. Uh, the next step uh, would be to kick out the Federal Reserve uh, and introduce an amendment to ensure that central banks were never allowed to operate in the United States again. And I mentioned it earlier about fluoridation of water, but immediately stop fluoridation of water supply. Um, if we look back in the um, in 1939, there was a, a hearing on the un-American activities, and in there they said that fluoridation of water was a communist plan to make the American public more docile so that they would not uh, revolt against the encroachment of communism. So those are just three of the, uh, three of the steps that, uh, that I've outlined in my second book. Well, there's certainly a lot written out there uh, about, you know, the future, about uh, the takeover of America. What makes yours so different? I think uh, what I try to do is to provide as much evidence and information, but in a very quick and easy-to-read book. Uh, there's many out there that are excellent, but, again, those books can often be four or five hundred pages long, making it very difficult for someone who's kind of thinking about it to actually, you know, want to pick it up and read it. Uh, this you can read uh, very quickly, um, certainly in a day, but some have said that they've managed it in a few hours. Um, I also give a lot of um, reference points and also some other uh, research um, materials for the for the reader to to go and check out. Well, thank you very much, David Watts, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. His book, Journey to a Brave New World and Journey to a Brave New World Part Two. He's got two books. Tell us how to get your books, David. Well, you can go to iUniverse.com and uh, search for Journey to a Brave New World. And uh, or you can also 
go to my website, journeytoabravenewworld.com, and both are available there. Or they're available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and other online bookstores. Again, thank you for being with us. We appreciate you sharing your insights, and it's uh, very sobering, but uh, there is hope if we will just stand up as we the people, right? Exactly. We can change direction. We just need people to wake up and uh, get off the couch and do something about it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Looking forward to uh, hearing your poetry. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That's, I'm always in awe of you folks. All right, here we go in three, two, one. The title of the book, this book of poetry, Lanterns of the Soul, A Poetic Journey Through Life. And the author and poet, Linda Harris. And Linda joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Linda. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, Lanterns of the Soul. You you have uh, chapters titled Lanterns on the Family, Lanterns on Faith in God, Lanterns on Man's Mortality, and, of course, many more. We'll learn more about the details in a minute of... You just say, hey, I'm just an ordinary woman with a very ordinary life, but you love to put your thoughts and feelings about a lot of different subjects on paper, and your daughters really encouraged you. They did. They did. And I do like to um, 
put my thoughts in the form of poems. Well, you know, there's some uh, very serious, and there's other poems that will just laugh out loud. So you have a little bit of everything. Thank you. I hope so. So uh, what started all of this writing poetry? When did that start? Um, I started when I was about 13. I don't remember any defining moment. I just really don't remember a time before that when I didn't do it. And I don't remember thinking, oh, this is great, you know, um, this is what I want to do. I just kept on doing it. And I guess, you know, as I got older, I, I really enjoyed it and leaned on it as a way to express myself because I don't care to do that very often verbally. I find it much easier to write my thoughts down. So that's what started it. And my, I have three beautiful grown daughters, and they've seen me write um, all the time that they were growing up. And uh, several years ago, they just browbeated me into... <laughs> putting them all down in a book for them so that they would all have them. Well, exactly. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll do that. Um, and then I finally got the book published after one manuscript that was sent to a bogus publishing company. Um, then they, uh, they had to, they're the ones who came and told me about that company that was not really for real. And then they went on their own and found iUniverse. And the rest is history. Well, good for you and good for all of us to have uh, your view, your poetic journey through life, because you've included poems that you wrote when you were 13 all the way up to the present. Yes, in, in every chapter. So that's where you get the poetic journey. Right, right. So we get a, a view of this young lady growing up into a mature woman, a mother, uh, and a grandmother. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. Thank well, you. Well, why don't you share one with us right now? What, what's the name of it? Um, it's called Winter's Flower. Um, it is, um, it's very true. It's very sad. But it, it depicts a lot of my poems because I don't tend to write just about myself and my feelings. I actually prefer to write about things that other people or are going through or have been through. Um, this was my daughter's very dear friend. So it's called Winter's Flower. A car, a curve, a chilling fog, spoken words, a look, a nod, crashing metal, nothing left, a sickening silence, death. An hour come, an hour gone, a tender life unjustly wronged. Within that hour comes an end, someone's daughter, someone's friend. Very lovely, sweetest spring, but twas the winter with its sting that now forbids her cheerful play, forbids her youth these summer days. A flower just about to bloom, then swiftly plucked away too soon. A flower sad that winter came, and in the mist it breathed her name. And that is for love of Tanya. And this true story, Tanya, well, it's how old when she had the accident? Nineteen. Nineteen. and. Uh-huh. Friend of one of your daughters. Yes. And yeah. it happened um, within view of her mother's kitchen window. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. Uh, my goodness, my goodness. 
Well, that took us right there. That's what's great about poetry. It just focuses us, and we feel the emotion. We can see pictures, and it, it's a, a concentrated form of life. And very well done. Very, very Thank well you. done. Now, now uh, I see you have others, uh, other true stories that you have in your book. Lots of true stories. Lots of true stories. Yes. Okay. Um, I have a lot of poems that end like that for love of and or in memory of or mm-hmm. um, for this, this is for someone that this happened to. Those are all true um, that that did happen right. to people. They're, right. they're not always sad. You know, I have a lot of poems in there. It's a personal book. It's a family book. You know, like I said, I really didn't think I was going to be publishing it. So a lot of my poems are on love and family and my children growing up and my experiences being a grandmother that outweigh anything I ever imagined. <laughs> I agree. I'm a grandfather. I understand. You. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I've got an eighth one coming in November, and they blow me away. My, they make my <laughs> cup run us over. Well, there it's magic. It's no way to have anyone understand unless you've experienced it, right? That that's for sure. My kids don't understand. You know, they they uh we've got nine grandkids and you know, every time oh, wow. we every time we see our kids it, it's uh oh, it's good to see you. Now let's go where are the grandkids. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> they are They must feel little. off. Yeah. Well, they are. They are. Precious little people. Yeah, and they connect so well with grandparents. It's just part of life. It's just part of God's plan, I believe. Well, the only thing that I think God made a mistake in is that I keep telling the girls, it's just too bad that maybe once a month you don't get to be me and see your own children through my eyes. Yes. You'll yeah. be a grandmother someday, but it's not going to be to your well, children. It'll be to theirs. And I think what it is is we don't see them every moment of our lives like we did when our kids were growing up. You know, they were. Oh no, with you us. don't have all the trash going on. And and it's just it's just it's just magic. It's just exciting. Uh-huh. You're looking forward to it, and then and it's uh-huh. about you know it's just it's just quite a connection and. Yeah, every I think the grandkids feel it too because of all the attention they get right, from right. the grandparents. So let's see. Why don't Why don't you share another one? Um, this one's called "My Greatest Honor." My grandson laughed today. His laugh was just for me. He thinks it's just the greatest to play peekaboo with me. <laughs> A few short minutes later, my granddaughter so happily squeals, "Mama, come let's play. We'll pretend we're having tea." This joyous sound of voices, so small and ever sweet, their busy little bodies and swiftly moving feet. What did we do without them? I can't remember what. They've so enriched our lives, their play so fun to watch. Their smiles are like the sunshine, they warm me with delight. Their gorgeous, glistening eyes, as bright as stars at night. To hear them whisper, please don't go is such a compliment. It makes me feel I did okay this time together spent. They honor me with love beyond my greatest dream. I praise you for these two and those I get to see. Very well I've, said. I've had um, two. I've had five more since then <laughs> and one on the way. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, there, you. you have about 250 poems in your book, and yes. they're all... 
under different titles with a lantern on, for example, on family, on God and faith, on man's mortality, and the list goes on and on, I guess. I use lanterns because I love lanterns. Uh, I like the way they shine that soft glow, and they kind of give you just a, a peek at things. And being poetry about my thoughts and feelings and observations and stuff, it's kind of like um, a little peek into my soul or a little peek into someone else's soul. So that's why it's called Lanterns of the Soul. Well, every poem, a unique perspective on an idea, you know, gives just kind of brings moments to life and gives us reasons to laugh out loud or even cry. So uh, you take us from one extreme to the other in our emotions. So that's what poets do. I hope. (laughs) I hope so. Well, very good. Very good, Linda. Thank you. I hope people will enjoy reading some of them. Well, tell us how to get your book, Lanterns of the Soul. Linda Harris is the poet. Um, You can get it from my website, which is www.lindaslanterns.com. I spell my name with a Y. You can get it through iUniverse, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and in some places, Kindle or eBook. Very good. Well, there it is, everyone. Linda Harris, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Trying to Catch the Wind, Memoir of a Love That Was More Than Love. And the author is Joseph N. Ferry. And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. What a great story, your story, uh, all about your first love and how that love uh, came in and out of your life. We'll find out the details in a moment. Uh, very emotional, and I think everyone's dream to have this kind of love. This book is the story of my first and greatest love, you say, which had the hands of fate all over it. One of the most fabulous and beautiful night of our first date after realizing we had each found our soulmate. We were nearly killed by a drunk driver as we were riding home on my motorcycle. So that's the way the book begins, too. Uh, that beautiful, beautiful night riding together on your little uh, motorcycle, uh, just kind of the perfect setting uh, in many, many ways. But before we get into the details, why did you decide to go, uh, after all these years, to write this book? Well, I actually started writing something else. Uh, back in 2008, I, uh, I was winding down a, a career in advertising, and I was on a beach in Barbados, and I just had this, this desire, this incredible desire to write uh, about some of my experiences. And I actually started writing a book about my early childhood on the old west side of Buffalo with lots of colorful characters. But by the end of the first day, my writing somehow moved towards this relationship, which had a monumental effect on my life. And for the next two weeks while I was in Barbados, I wrote day and night. And I ended up writing 150 pages of what would become Trying to Catch the Wind. And I just found myself, uh, you know, and as I wrote about it, it was kind of a catharsis because this relationship and the loss of this relationship has kind of been a shadow throughout my entire life. I had suppressed it, but once I allowed myself to start writing, I ended up writing, uh, you know, the beginning of this book, which took a bunch of years to write because I was working 55 hours in advertising a week, and uh, it became... It became my, my greatest uh, joy outside of my job was to write this story. And I've worked on it uh, in Spain. I've worked on it in Barbados. I actually worked on it when I was in Hawaii. Uh, and finally, when I left my full-time job, I was able to really uh, go back and really start to do uh, revision, which is really an important part of the writing process. Uh, I had some great uh, inspiration and some instruction from Lucia Graves, whose father was the poet Robert Graves. I became friends with her uh, a number of years ago, and uh, she's a great author as well. And so she gave me some really good advice, and that's, you know, how the story got. Uh, it just captured my imagination, and to this day, it's, it's in my head all the time, and I, I really uh, try to uh, capture some of the passion of that story, which, by the way, I cannot believe... Uh, how much it still affects me when I, when I, you know, when I just stop and think about it. You were both 17, Marilyn and you, and it, was it love at first sight? I, it's, uh, we, there was a dance, uh, weekly dance. It was the 
uh, social place for teenagers. It was called Mount Major Hall. And I had been going there for three years. It was my third year going there. And the very first night that Marilyn and her friend Olga decided to see what it was all about, she, she came to the dance hall and uh, I spotted her. And from the moment I saw her, I knew there was something great that was going to happen. Her first and only visit to Mount Major ended up being the last time I would ever go to Mount Major because the very next week is when we went on our first date and the story begins. The story begins with this fateful ride on the motorcycle. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, we we left the beach, and, and the way the story starts, I just wanted to, you know, to begin the story uh, with our ride back home after we had had this fantastic date. I don't give any details about the date because that's coming later. But we were riding home, and I still can remember the feeling I had. Now, being on a motorcycle, in, in those days we didn't have to wear helmets, being on a motorcycle, uh, the person on the back had to hold on to you. And I could feel her arms around me, and it was almost like I was dreaming, except I can feel, tangibly feel her holding me. And I was at the highest point of uh, my life, and, and she was as well. And so we, we were heading down a, almost an abandoned road to get home, and we just, for no apparent reason, just followed a, a side road, and along that side road, uh, a drunk driver came out of a, a bar onto our narrow road. He came directly at us, and I was able to avoid most of his car by getting on the right shoulder. Marilyn, of course, she had her hands around me. Her head was facing to the right. She didn't see it coming, and she was struck by this speeding Mustang. And so we were, in a way, as I say, and I, I cannot believe it myself, if we had been in a car, it would have been a head-on crash, and our night and our lives would have ended that, that evening. Uh, fortunately, we were on a motorcycle, and fortunately, I was able to get far enough over uh, so we basically survived because we were on a motorcycle. That's another one of those crazy, uh, you know, things I believe that fate had a hand in. Did you ever marry? Did we get married? No. We, we did get engaged, and we were engaged for a, a couple years. Um, but our plans were, were changed by circumstances, and, and then, you know, that's what the book is about, especially the ending. Right. Well, I think everyone dreams of, you know, romantic love. It transcends time and cultures, as you say, and, uh, you know, it's sub-themes for searching for the meaning in one's personal life. It's kind of everyone wants that and wants to keep it forever, and I guess it, it's the kind of thing that has left such an imprint on your mind and heart. That's why you've written your book. Yeah, it was extraordinary, and, uh, you know, I, I, one of the other things that I think, uh, Steve, that you do as you get older, uh, you know, people you know die, you know, the, the older generation dies off actually more and more rapidly as you get older and older, obviously, but then you start losing friends, too, and at that point, at some point, you start to look back to evaluate your life, to, to look at the highs and lows of your life. And to, you know, compare where you are to what you dreamt. And I did that. And, of course, my greatest disappointment was that relationship not working out. 
And by doing that kind of uh, uh, soul, soul searching, I was able to, uh, to realize a lot of things. Uh, number one, uh, perhaps, you know, why I never married until later in life. And, uh, you know, it was a great disappointment to lose her. And I never really envisioned anyone having my children but her. And so afterwards, even though I searched and had numerous relationships, I never, I never uh, really uh, found anybody to replace her. That's really the long and short of it. You used many short quotes of contemporary songs of the time period. Why did you choose those particular uh, particular songs? Well, like I like I explained at one point in the book, uh, we have a, a people have a, a, a way of connecting events in their lives to music of the time. Uh, Sometimes they're thematically connected. Sometimes there's no thematic connection whatsoever. But you, you, when you hear a song, all of a sudden you think of a certain person or an event. The songs that I used as I was writing the book, um, I kept hearing these different songs in my life. Of course, the most important one was Catch the Wind by Donovan Leach. Uh, that song uh, played such a major role in my life. And in fact, during the course of getting this book published, I made contact with Donovan. I got permission to use that. I went to see him in London. Uh, he, he, we corresponded through email. Uh, it, it was just an amazing thing. But the songs, every song that I mentioned, most of them are thematically connected. Uh, some are comical, like uh, The Name Game, <laughs> which was by Shirley Ellis. It was just kind of... Oh, funny. yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was a silly song, but yes. there's a free episode in the story where The Name Game... I had a girlfriend at, this was before Maryland, I had a girlfriend who was very pretty, but very, you know, kind of uh, ditzy. And she called me at my home one time to tell me about this great new song that she just loved. And she started singing the name game over the telephone. And I was like, so unbelievably, like, not interested. I put the phone down, I went to use the laboratory, <laughs> I came back and she still was singing the song. And it just, you know, it was one of those relationships that, you know, just couldn't oh, stick. Even though she was attractive to me physically, I needed somebody that was more than the name game, you know. So, it, but the music in the story, every song has a correlation to events in the story. And our, most of them are stamped time-wise to the exact time of the story. So this time so, period of the book is what? Well, it, it, you know, obviously 1965. Basically, 19, the core of the story is 1965 uh, through 1967. The Summer of Love is when Marilyn and I, uh, I lost her. And, but there are events afterwards that... Uh, you know, because I lost her, I was able to go on an odyssey uh, through education, uh, traveling. I went to all the festivals. I met incredible people. But basically, the story, the story, the core of the story is between 1965 and 1967. And then there's some additional things that happen afterwards, and it concludes. The whole thing concludes uh, uh, 1971, and then there's a brief. Uh, uh, encounter in 1974, and then that's it. That's the end of it. Have, no you, have you ever had any contact with her since the end of the story? Yes, I have. Uh, when I w was writing it, I decided, uh, partly because I was worried about if something happened to me or something happened to her, 
how terrible it would be that, you know, the story wouldn't be known. And I decided, uh, I, I actually found out that she lived out of the city. She lives about 150 miles away and is married. I decided that I needed to contact her to let her know I was writing this story and that uh, uh, I, just, I just needed to her, her to know that. The thought of her finding out about this story you know, after I had written it, it just I just couldn't do that to her. I can't imagine someone writes a story about you and then all of a sudden you find out that you're the center of a story. I mean, how cruel would that be? And I absolutely didn't want to do that. And I, I wrote her a long letter. I had a mutual friend, a, a good friend of mine, contact her. And she said to this friend, Debbie, she said, why this story? Why now after all these years? And it was like the greatest question as she was so brilliant when she was young. She's still brilliant. And I said, yeah, all right, so I've got to explain that. And I wrote her an 11-page letter. The two things I wanted to let her know, two things, I will never stop loving that young woman in my life and that we should be proud that we created a story that has lived beyond its time. And those two things, because, you know, people change. Uh, she may not be anything like the young woman that I was in love with. I happen to think I'm just as nutty and crazy as I was when I was a kid. Uh, full of passion. I just, you know, most people, uh, my friend's mother used to say that I was vaccinated with a Victrola needle. So I assume that I <laughs> talked too much. <laughs> well, how did she respond? Uh, in the letter, I told her I know that her life is probably happy and content and then I'm a ghost from the past, and I told her I would understand if she didn't respond. And uh, thus far, I've had no response. I'm, just, I'm going to be sending her a copy of the book with another letter and something that Donovan gave uh, to her and I. So, so what, is your family, that, what does your family think about the book? Um, well, my, both my parents are dead. My father doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, you know, shine in the book, let's say. My mother... This is a tribute to her uh, and her courage. She would have loved it. She's also dead. Uh, my one sister that I uh, uh, lost a few years ago, I had read part of the book to her, and she loved it. She, um, she loved where it was at that stage. Um, but the rest of my family, I don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, people, the problem is that you don't, people are afraid to tell you what they really think. And I tell people, listen, right. I've got thick skin. You don't like it? Tell me. I mean, I, I would understand, but people always pull their punches, or if they don't understand something, they won't ask. So I have no idea. And you know what? I wrote it. I wrote it because I needed to, to you know, to free myself of this uh, this story. Uh, it turns out that it, I'm not free of it anymore. <laughs> it's still part of me. It is still part of you, and you're sharing it with the world. The title of the book, Trying to Catch the Wind. Uh, there's a very special poem in it. Tell us about why you chose that poem. Well, to be honest with you, I wrote two poems. Uh, I've written poetry for most of my adult life, uh, but this, the two poems, the poem that you see on the, on, in the book, was actually written for no other reason than, you know, kind of a reflection for myself. And at one point... Um, uh, Tracy Anderson asked me if I had any additional information for the cover, and I thought, you know what? I wrote this poem, and, I, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, because sometimes it's hard to judge your own work. I said, I'll send it to you, but if it's not good, if you don't think it's 
you know, has any validity, let me know because I, again, I got good thick skin. I didn't write it to, you know, to have it published, but she, I sent it to her and it turns out that she liked it. And I actually, as I look at it, I think it's really, you know, really kind of captures the sentiment of uh, this whole book. And it, and it just, you know, again, where does it come from? It came from inside. I don't know why. Uh, the other poem, which I haven't shared at all, is, is another poem, but it's a poem to Marilyn, which if, the only person I would actually show it to would be her if she wanted it, but I don't think she will. I mean, I, I you know, again, I'm the ghost of the past. I don't want to disrupt her life or let her, you know, uh, doubt what she has in her life now. But I do know that, uh, you know, this love, uh, for some reason, just is there and will always be there. We've been listening to Joseph N. Ferry. He is the author of his book, Trying to Catch the Wind, Memoir of a Love That Was More Than Love. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available at iUniverse. It's also available at uh, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. At this point, those are the, the sources of where you can get the book. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. It's my pleasure iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.